again, church. In uh, Rex's communion meditation, he was talking about um, people coming up to him, uh, or possibly to you, and you're not, you're not sure who they are. And um, I have to tell you that that's happening. And so um, this week, one of those forgetful moments for me was that it, we have a, I participate in a Bible study at 5.30 a.m. on Wednesday morning. So it's, it's an early rise, 4, 4.30, and then drive up here. And I drive much the same way. Uh, the Bible studies at, at Bex, and so I drive much the same way. To, and the next thing I know, I'm pulling into the church parking lot. And I sit there for a minute going... It was one of those fleeting things where the, the, the wires weren't connected. It's like, I know where I am. I'm not sure why I'm here, but where am I really supposed to be? And then when I realize it, I'm in the car by myself, nobody else, and I start laughing. I humor myself. Why not? So then I pull back out, and I still had time to get to the Bible study. But I saw something on social media this week that if... And I just extend this to everyone because it happens to me sometimes. And much like Rex said... You know, somebody will walk up and say, hey, how you doing, Mark? And, and it's so great to see you and stuff like that. And you're kind of going, and this is all happening in milliseconds. And you're kind of trying to sit there and go, play back all the history files and connect them and face recognition. And you want to take their thumb and put it on something or something. You know, God, tell me who it is. And you're just sitting there going, and they're just talking. You're kind of going, yeah, yeah. And then somebody else walks up. And then the polite thing would would be for me to introduce the first people that came to me to the next people that came to me. So I'm just telling you, I saw this on social media, I think it's a great idea. So if you walk up to me and you're kind of going, he doesn't know who I am, just keep talking. And when somebody else walks up and I don't introduce you, that's a sure sign I'm not sure who you are, no offense, then just say to the other people, hi, my name is, then I'll know you and I'll know them. We have to work together, especially as we age, amen? Then, it, then the world may not know anything. Um, we'll fake them out, I guess. Um, it is a joy. Uh, as I sit here this morning and we, the singing and just everything, to see the body of Christ at work, to feel the Spirit moving within our midst. Some of you have said, boy, it was just electrifying this Sunday or that Sunday or something like that. And that's not us. That's God working in and through us. That's us coming, coming to worship or joining online to worship with a heart that's prepared and ready. Not just to check the box as we've talked about here in the, in the first chapter or so of James, but to, to participate in worship. That we, we are coming not with people, although we are, but we're coming first and foremost ourselves to connect to worship with God. And that takes some preparation. That's thinking about it during the week. That's digging into the word, uh, reading the Bible. That's praying. That's fellowshipping with other Christians. That's serving, as we'll hear more and more in the book of James about that. So it's a togetherness. It doesn't just happen. It happens because first and foremost, God is guiding and directing us. But second is that we have willing spirits to respond in obedience and surrender to allow God to work in and through us and around us. And so it's so exciting to see that. I, I, I wish kind of 
that the uh, praise, you could have heard the praise team sing that last chorus a cappello because that's how they practiced it, just to see the four voices just melt. And all five of them or more that are in the, in the uh, worship team, you know, they came from different walks and things of that nature, and God just molded their voices together. Amen? And we get to be a recipient. To see Hannah, Hannah, thank you so much. I know she was a little nervous. But man, didn't she do a great job, amen? It's so exciting to see young people step forward to share the word of God to, in fear or, or whatever, to step forward and be a part of the service. So thank you, Hannah. I appreciate that so much. So good. That's the church tomorrow, folks. That's why we can rejoice because God's working in our midst, not just for us today, but that he's preparing a path and a way for the church tomorrow. If, we, if people 175 years ago hadn't been actively involved and concerned about presenting the gospel message, you and I possibly wouldn't be sitting here today. So to see young people step forward in any way, that's why the launch of Junior Church is going to be so much fun and so exciting to see those kids. Because when kids are attached and plugged in, guess what? On Sunday morning, they're going, Mom and Dad, aren't we going to church and mom and dad might be thinking something else. How can you tell your kid, no, we're not going to church? So God works through young people, and he encourages all of us to do the same. So James chapter 2 this morning, as we dig through our, our study of James, just a couple things as you turn there in your Bibles, or turn your Bibles on and go to James. Uh, James may, there's a lot of thought and and strong feeling that James was probably the first book written of the New Testament. Uh, and as we know, it was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. So a, a special thing there to know that somebody that lived life with Jesus as a brother growing up wrote this letter, and it, that it was probably the first of the New Testament to be written. Just a little quick review. You know, we know that teachers do this all the time, and I think it's a great idea. We've talked about in chapter 1 over the past few weeks that we have holy trials. There are holy trials that happen in our life, and those are the ones that God allows uh, to strengthen our faith, to encourage us, to, to show us things about ourselves, and, and to challenge us. Those are those things that God allows in our lives, so we all have those trials. There are also the unholy trials, which are trials that we choose, we cause, we make decisions, and then we suffer the consequences of those trials because of bad choices or, or things of that nature, or things that we didn't do, thus putting us into a trial as well. We also learn in James chapter 1 that we're responsible, nobody else. Not God, we can't blame God, it's us. He gave us a free will, he's provided all the strength and the power, he's provided his son Jesus, uh, he's provided his word for us, so if we're not plugging in, we're not, we're not connecting, it's not his fault. We can't blame God. You know, today, every week, it seems like, especially in the times that we've had over the past year or so, people are saying, well, Mark, how could your God let this happen? I'm going to tell you what, folks. My God is over all and in all and through all, and it's really pointing four fingers back at us. It's because of sin that all this is taking place. And everybody goes, well, how did he figure that? That's a whole nother sermon and a whole nother time. But it's not God's fault. God's here loving us through it. He's getting us through it. He's providing a path for us to get through it. And this year, 
a year later, we are going to celebrate in some form or fashion, either in person or online, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? We're going to sing, Christ the Lord has risen today. We're going to be involved and engaged in worshiping and praising our God this Easter. And for that, I say praise God, hallelujah, amen. Then last week, here's the quiz. What was it? Quick, slow, slow. You remember that? Quick to hear. Very good. Slow to speak and slow to anger. Yes, quick, slow, slow. Sounds like a dance step. It's not. Might be. I don't know. But anyway, quick to hear, slow to speak, and definitely slow to anger. Also, we learned in the last couple weeks to be doers, and we'll hear that over and over, not just hearers. And then pure religion is to visit orphans and widows and keep unstained by the world itself. Today, we're going to look at five features of genuine, godlike impartiality. And I've read the book of James many times, and I probably, this wasn't one of those sections that just jumped at me, because the other sections did. You know, you hear about the tongue, and you hear about... Um, faith and works and things of that nature. So even in the short book of James of five chapters, you kind of get those one or two topics that you just hone in on. But this is tucked in here. And as we know, in James writing this letter, he, he starts out with greetings to everyone. And then he moves along. And, and much like anything else in letters that we write, normally the first things, or at least when we get to the middle of the letter, is somewhat the meat. So he warms us up in this letter, and then all of a sudden here in chapter 2, in the first few verses, he starts to talk about impartiality. And and so we kind of miss it, because there's the faith and works issue that comes up, and then the tongues issue and stuff like that. So we don't want to miss that today. So I want to give you just a a, a synopsis here of what we're going to look at in verses 1 through 13 this morning. First, we're going to look in verse 1 about the principle of impartiality. Second, in verses 2 through 4, we're going to look at the example of what James is trying to teach us. In verses 5 through 7, then we're going to look at the inconsistency. In verses 8 through 11, the violation. And in verses 12 and 13, the appeal. So we'll see those all fit together as we study um, James chapter 2. Let's read the word of God together, verses 1 through 3. Listen as I read. My brethren, again, James just continually addresses those who he's writing to in a very loving way. He loves these people. He has a connection with them. He wants them to know that he loves them. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who he loved, who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blasphemy the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he said, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And we heard about this law of liberty in chapter 1, verse 25. For judgment, in verse 13, will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God's blessing be upon the James chapter 1, verse 25, if you'll look with me. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. See that spoken of in chapter 2. Wow. The law of liberty, what is it? The law of liberty is true freedom. That true freedom is found is freedom to be okay and to obey in God. God and do what pleases Him. So true freedom is freedom to obey God and do what pleases God. That's the law of liberty. It's not what I think or what I think is, is important or what I make up or what the world makes up around me. The law of liberty as, as spoken of in the, in the scriptures is true freedom is, to, is freedom to obey God and do what pleases Him. That's the law of liberty. And whether the world wants to accept that or not, that's not an option. Now, we do a lot to defy it, but again, we're talking about the God of creation. The God of creation, if He created us, which we totally believe He did, then doesn't He have the sole authority to determine what the law of liberty is? And he doesn't ask us for our help to redefine as culture and society and technology change. He does not ask us, nor has he ever, nor will he ever ask us to help change what is perfect already. And the world just needs to understand that. And then accept it and live by it. But we are so intent on creating and trying to correct what we think is imperfect only because it's imperfect to us, because it doesn't fit what we want. And all of a sudden, the devil jumps in and makes it, well, it's not fair to this person or that person or this group or that group, so we must have to redefine it. God must have just just made a small mistake there, so... He's given us the thought to create and to change. No! Yes, he's given us free will. And yes, he's given us brains and a heart. And he's created us in his image, which is perfection. And yet sin entered entered into the world. He does not need our help. It's the sin of man that changed the course of time of the perfection of what Jesus created. And therefore, to get back... We must go back to the law of liberty as given by God. And that law of liberty is freedom to obey Him and do what pleases Him. Not what pleases me or pleases us or pleases the world or anything else. It talks about judgment and judgment was the core of the Roman law. 
Now understand, we're no different today. We just have different titles and different groups and different things going on. But everything can be boiled back and looked at even in the time of Jesus when the scriptures were written. And we know the scriptures are alive yesterday, today, and always. That they speak to us no matter how many times we read them. They constantly are teaching us and speaking to us in different ways or in the same way because we didn't get it the first time. So what we see in the scripture We talk about Romans and the nation of Israel. We talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Gentiles. We talk about all the tribes of the names that I can't pronounce. So it was no different today. They had all of those differences in groups of people. And yet the scripture speaks as it did then us today. Judgment was the the core of Roman law. It was the law back then of retribution, to get back, to make even. To settle the score, some what familiar to us today, central to God's law was what you do to others will be done to you in the judgment. Not necessarily here and now, but in the judgment. Rewarded for good, punished for evil. Mercy was required in the Old Testament. Mercy is required in the New Testament and in today. James chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favor. Discrimination is okay. Partiality still works, but we've dressed it up and chosen to call it something else. Even yet this morning, as I scanned some media, one of the headlines was about marches taking place yesterday and today about discrimination that has taken place this week. So people have risen up. They're leaving their homes and they're protesting about how this discrimination, how could it have taken place? Why is it taking place? And we must stop it. And we know over the course of the last six months, That has happened over and over and over again. And we get caught up in the here and now. But I proclaim to you today from the word of God that this is nothing new. It doesn't make it right. Because God says it's wrong. And the example that James uses is that of a rich man and a poor man. Some say, Mark, that's not enough. That's not enough. We want to dress it up in a lot of other ways whether it be race or gender or who knows what. We want to fancify it. We want to stoke the fire more. We want to be more pointed about it. And yet it's nothing new according to God's word. And James speaks of what Jesus believes and how Jesus lived his life. Isn't that amazing? It was written so long ago and yet it's so pertinent to today. But we got to tell the world to be quiet. And listen to the word of God. And then accept it, believe it, and then put it into place. There is a solution to the problem. There is. And it's not found in what we do. It's not found in in new laws being written. It's found in you and I listening to God Almighty 
and to his word and ingesting his word and understanding that the change and the solution begins with me and you as individuals changing our lives, not according to the world, but according to God. Gives us in verse 2, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, and here if you study this, it says he probably didn't just have one gold ring, he had a lot of gold rings. And dressed in fine clothes, and when it says fine clothes, it means a lot of purple. He was, he was, he was on Easter Sunday, he had the Easter bonnet to kill. Amen? You know, that must have caused a lot of problems. And I do remember as a young person, the Easter bonnets that people, the ladies would wear. But that must have caused a real problem with seeing from your pew. Amen? You didn't think about that, did you? You know, I'm always trying to give people a good worship experience. But I can imagine pastors back then and preachers were going, Oh my gosh, all these ladies are going to wear these big fancy Easter bonnets. Now where are we going to put them? Let's put them in a special section over here. And anybody wants a seat over here. I think that's dumb but it's probably true how many of you have gone to a game or a concert or something like that and somebody taller than you sits in front of you and your first thought is don't sit there your first thought is i paid good money to watch this i don't well guess what he paid good money too it, it happened in the church this fine man walks in James expresses how you must not give him place over the poor man that walks in. And when it says in verse 2, also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, it could have been the clothes weren't totally ragtagged and stuff like that, but it might have been there was a smell, they were maybe torn or whatever. They were probably the best that that person had at the time, but not the best according to when we look at the rich man and poor man. Who starts to compare? We do. We line them up side by side, and then we make judgments and decisions based on outward appearances without even knowing. And here it says in in verse 3, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. Apparently back then in the synagogues, there weren't a lot of places to sit. There were a few up front. They were saved for those special people. But most of the other seats were on the floor or stand along the wall, or in some instances, seats had a footstool in front of them. I don't know how much you had to pay for those. But they had a footstool. But a degrading thing would be to ask a person that came in to either stand in the back, sit in the back, or, as it's said here, to sit at the footstool. That would be a demeaning thing happening within the worship committee or the worship group. The distinction in verse 4 says, have you not made distinctions when you do these things among yourselves and become what? Judges with evil motives. Is it any different than today? The sad thing and the dangerous position that we're in today that I see is this. That to proclaim this chapter, these scripture verses out loud in our society right now, we would be hushed and shushed up as quick as possible. Because they would say, you don't understand, and and you haven't taken this, or you haven't been this, or you, whatever. I'm not saying I understand everything. What I am proclaiming to you today is not from me, it's from the Word of God. And it says, look, 
no matter whether it's a rich man, a poor man, or any of these other things that we have classified that have caused divisions within our country, within our society, within our world today, we must look at it in the eyes of Jesus. And that's where we start to make the changes in what we say, in what we do, in what we don't do, in how we act, so that we will become less judgmental, so that we will be open to and not impartial, that we will be and see as Jesus sees. He goes on in verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God, this is a powerful thing, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Multiple scriptures, Old and New Testament, where God didn't choose the rich of the world, but rather he chose the poor to present his gospel, his word, their faith, because he knew they would be more receptive to it. Because one of the dangers of of richness is that we become comfortable within ourselves that we have attained whatever we've attained, and we push God out. So God's plan was he knew who would be most receptive. It doesn't mean the rich is bad and the poor is good. It means all are good. It depends on how we respond to that which God has given us that puts us either with the sheep or the goats. Be very blunt. Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppressed you and personally dragged you into court? And I thought about that. It's true. It's true even today. Usually it's not poor versus poor going to court. They can't afford to go to court. It's usually the rich against the poor that go to court. And they are merciless when they go to court. So that which was written so long is still pertinent and applicable to today. He goes on to talk about those that are rich. He says, do they not blasphemy the fair name by which you have been called? It doesn't mean rich people are bad. It doesn't mean you can't be a Christian and be rich. It just means if God has blessed you in that way, he expects for you to use that wealth that he has blessed you with to return to him the glory, the honor, and the blessings, to use it to feed others. That's why I challenge our congregation and our leadership constantly. As God has so freely blessed us, We must be urgent and diligent to constantly be searching to what he wants us to reinvest those gifts back in to the world for his glory and honor. Because if we don't, that which he gave us, he can take away very quickly. And it says in the New Testament, to whom much is given, much is required. And so we must constantly be thinking about, God, what do you want us to do to minister to others with the blessings that you have given to us? If we don't, We'll take them away, and that's scriptural as well. Verse 8, if, you, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law. What is the royal law here? What are the two greatest commandments? Love God. I can't hear you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. Love God. Love others. That's the royal law according to what? The scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well if you do this. But if you show partiality, if you discriminate, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of them all. In verse 11, he gets very pointed. He's given us two commandments here. He brings up, do not commit murder and do not commit adultery. 
The thought is this, very pointedly. If you can say, I've never committed adultery, but you've murdered, guess what? You're still guilty of the law. Does it mean that you, by just chance, you're now guilty of the other sin that you said you weren't? No. But if you have transgressed against the royal law at all, it makes you a sinner, makes us, makes me a sinner, and therefore we're guilty. Doesn't, it's not about how many sins I've had versus so many sins, so many sins somebody else has had. We first look inwardly. And as God's word comes into us, then we allow it to work through us. We're so worried in our world today about fixing everybody else instead of fixing us. I have to be more, more sensitive to not be partial. I have to look upon everyone as Jesus would look. Sometimes that's a real challenge, isn't it? Let's just be honest, isn't it? There are some people that really test your ever last nerve. Right? I saw somebody go. They do. And it's at those moments I have to pray, please, Lord, love them through. And he promises to do that. He knows that we're incapable of truly loving from the from the fullness of our heart because of the sin that has entered our world. But we needed to acknowledge it and then start to put it into practice. So speak, verse 12, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty, freedom to obey God and do what God or what pleases God. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless. It will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs. That was applicable then. How many of you have ever needed? Others need. This morning I want to share a story with you. As we Come to a study in James chapter 2, verses 1. And this picks up with verse 13 about showing mercy. There's a story told that took place in London when a great preacher, a very fine young man by the name of Caesar Milan, was invited one evening to a very large and prominent home where a choice musical was to be presented. On the program was a young lady who thrilled the audience with her singing and playing. When she finished, this young preacher threaded his way through the crowd which was gathered around her. When he finally came to her and had her attention, he said, Young lady, when you were singing, I sat there and thought how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefited if you would dedicate yourself and your talent to the Lord. But, he added, you are just as much a sinner as the worst drunkard in the street or any harlot on Scarlet Street. But I am glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse you from all sin if you will come to Him. In a very haughty, manner, she turned her head aside and said to him, you are very insulting, sir. And she started to walk away. He said, 
Lady, I did not mean any offense, but I pray that the Spirit of God will convict you. Well, they all went home, and that night this young woman could not sleep. At 2 o'clock in the morning, she knelt at the side of her bed and took Christ as her Savior. And then she, Charlotte Elliott, sat down and while sitting there wrote the words of a favorite hymn, Just As I Am. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Then the final thing. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, believe. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come.